Acts 18, beginning in verse 1. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working. For by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they had heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul, In the night by a vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was prosecutor of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names in your own law, look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. And they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria and with him were Priscilla and Aquila in Sincrea. He had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. They came to Ephesus, and he left them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they had him stay for a longer time, he did not consent, but taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again, if God wills, he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. The Lord has been very gracious to us over the last several years to be able to give some effort to grounding ourselves as a church into the reality of the necessity of the centrality of Christ, recognizing that He is the most preeminent most important one in all of creation, throughout all of the world, for all time. Now, the reason it is important, I would like to argue, that we give such effort and intentionality to focusing on Christ, who he is and what he's done for us, is not only because of who he is, but also because of the reality of 
the situation and circumstances that we find ourselves in in our day. An honest assessment of Christianity in our day would have to come to the conclusion that Christ, by and large, has become a mere convenient addition to our self-made religion, and it has produced, by and large, a half-hearted Christianity. The tossing and turning and unsteady, loyalty-lacking version of Christianity that's very prevalent in our world, it fits into our culture quite well. But it is nowhere in the Scriptures. The, the New Testament knows nothing of this type of religion. The aimless approach that so many professing Christians take towards life. It's as if we're headed nowhere, void of any steadfastness or endurance. And as a result, we will succeed getting nowhere and not enduring. We are far too easily satisfied, content with knowing so little about Christ, content with following so slow with regard to his revealed truth. Now, others aren't easily satisfied. Others of us are very willing to pack in truth and knowledge at amazing rates, yet we never seem to actually live on or apply the truths that we appear to be pursuing so diligently. Temptations abound within and without. The temptation to agree on the one hand to a list of truths, yet failing to live in light of any of them, or affirming on paper or in theory biblical doctrine, yet oftentimes the methods are left completely unaffected with regard to how we live and worship or adhering to a certain set of doctrines or beliefs, but in practice and in life, it proves unrecognizable. And really, we could go on and on. But it will suffice to simply sum up all of these situations and circumstances by saying, there is something besides Christ at the core of our culture's version of Christianity. Something other than Jesus something other than his glorious person and something other than his saving work. We run the risk of replacing him at the center with all kinds of other things. Morality, piety, intellectualism, ethics, religious zeal, clever ideas, trendy approaches, self-interest, self-help, psychoanalysis, social justice concerns, entertainment, and again, we could go on and on and on. None of these are problems until you put them in the center. They are not Christ, and because they are not Christ, they will not suffice. They will not endure. Nothing other than Jesus will suffice. Nothing other than Jesus is worth having as our foundation, his glorious person and his saving work. 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, 
which is the goal of where I hope everything revolves around this morning. The Apostle Paul writes, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. If Jesus Christ is not the focus, if he is not the center of our Christianity and of our life, it is not Christianity. Oh, that we might be done with our culturally acceptable substitutes of religion. We're so prone to falling into those traps. Whatever we have resolved to do in this new year, whatever we have resolved to do or not to do during this new season as a church, we must add this. Do not give in to the status quo of Christless churchianity. We must determine to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's my goal, to convince every one of us over the next several minutes that we might leave with an increased commitment one to another to determine to know nothing amongst one another save Jesus Christ and him crucified. That our entire lives individually as families and collectively as a local body, might be committed to knowing Christ and him crucified, enamored with his person and enjoying the work that he's done for us. The remarkable blessing of this church building, it is impossible to overstate the blessing that it is. In fact, every statement is an understatement of what a blessing from God it is. May we be diligent to match it with our pursuit of knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. What now for us? As a church, what now? What now as Christ's body? What now as God's dearly loved children? How about this? How about let's determine to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let's pursue being more intimately acquainted with Jesus Christ than anyone else or anything else. Let's determine to live in light of the gospel of God with our whole hearts in every sphere of our lives. May the apostles' words to Corinth become our words one to another. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The church was established by the Lord to worship and glorify God by proclaiming the gospel to the world and being the steward of the means of grace for the sanctification of the saints through the upholding and propagating of God's word. As the individual members of the body work together in the spirit and in love for mutual edification of the whole body, the purpose of shaping God's people collectively into the perfect image and stature of the Lord Jesus Christ is fulfilled. God established his church to worship him, to worship and glorify him. And that's what we want to do. We want to do it in a way that he has commanded in his word in order that he would be glorified and in order that we would receive the greatest benefit and blessing. It's worth us considering as we begin a new season 
as we think through different aspects of who we are as a church and what we commit our time and attention to, particularly with regard to when we come together each Lord's Day morning to worship collectively or corporately, a consideration that we ought to take is this. Would heaven's crowd recognize our corporate worship? A.W. Tozer once said, It is scarcely possible in most places to get anyone to attend a meeting where the only attraction is God. We will be painstaking at making the only attraction God. He's the only one worthy of being worshipped. May God help us to know him and desire to worship him. He's given us the scriptures in order that we might know how to live and move and have our being. He's given us a book as our guide. And we seek to regulate our lives and our church services with regard to that. But the guide is a bad goal. The goal is a person. The guide is good, but the goal is better. The guide is to get us somewhere, to, to move us into greater intimacy and better acquaintance with Jesus. So we want to be careful in the midst of the change and the shifting around that we don't stop short of the goal merely being satisfied with the right guide. We want the goal. We want him. We want Christ to draw near. We need him to be near us in the person and power of his spirit. We read Acts chapter 18 as Paul was getting to Corinth. Corinth as a city was completely destroyed two centuries before Paul got there, leveled by the Romans because they refused to bow to Roman rule. Corinth as a city was well known for its immorality. It was an ungodly city. We would think of it like Vegas in our day or New York City. It was a wealthy city located between two seaports, so lots of money came through. A hundred years after the leveling, Julius Caesar was the Roman general who rebuilt Corinth and made it a Roman colony. So now Corinth as a city is wealthy, immoral, and arrogant. This is the backup, this is the setting for Paul's arrival into Corinth. And if we back up a little bit more before he gets there, it's helpful for us to see personally. So that's the city of Corinth. Now let's look at the Apostle Paul prior to arriving at Corinth. Acts chapter 16, Philippi. Lydia's heart was open to respond to God's word. But not only that. The fortune-telling slave girl badgered Paul for several days. Paul eventually commanded the evil spirit to come out of her. All of the profit from her fiascos ceased and dried up, resulting in her masters accusing Paul and Silas of throwing the city into confusion. Listen to verses 22 and 23. The crowd rose up together against them, Paul and Silas, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet into the stocks. 
And Paul moves on to Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. Paul went into them for three Sabbaths. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded to join Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But, Acts 17, verse 5, But the Jews, being jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So from Philippi to Thessalonica to Berea, when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. But when the Jews of Thessalonica, where they had left, found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, from Philippi to Thessalonica to Berea, and now Athens. And Paul was reasoning in the synagogue there in Athens with Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. God is now declaring to, pardon, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. From Philippi to Thessalonica to Berea to Athens. And from Athens, Paul went on to Corinth in Acts chapter 18. And surely, at this point in Paul's ministry, he realizes that his approach is not having a ton of success. Certainly, he's going to wake up to reality and not attempt the same worn-out method again. He's landed in prison. He's been beaten and mocked. Surely now, before going to this great city of Corinth, surely Paul has revisited his manual, altered his message, changed his methods concerning how to reach immoral, self-indulgent, proud people. Surely he's going to harp on the Ten Commandments this time instead or pound them with principle-based externals or emphasize all the Old Testament laws or find their families in shambles and focus on centralizing them or teach the proper child education technique. Anything other than Jesus, his life, and his death. Surely Paul has figured that out. Well, it simply doesn't happen. You notice in as we read verse, pardon, chapter 18 of Acts earlier, that God reassures Paul of his plan for Paul to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He reassures Paul of his plan to save Corinthians. God reassures Paul that he would be with him as he continues proclaiming the gospel. Which brings us to 1 Corinthians, the letter that Paul has written to the believers at Corinth. Now, the letter primarily deals with problems, as you're aware of, in the church. But before Paul begins handling all of the many issues at hand, we're given a glimpse into Paul's understanding of how a New Testament church should operate. How does Paul approach ministry? 
How does Paul approach penetrating a culture that is so ungodly and immoral and uninterested in Jesus? And there's a helpful pattern here from Paul. But before we consider the helpful pattern of Paul, we should note that the Bible is also full of poor patterns. Poor patterns of worshiping God are aplenty throughout the Scriptures. Leviticus 10 Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans after putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. God did not command them to worship in that way. We are not free to devise our own strategies of worship or of ministry, nor to determine our own ministry methods. Fire came down out of the presence of the Lord, Leviticus 10 continues, and consumed them, Nadab and Abihu, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, it is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. So Aaron, therefore, kept silent. Another example of a poor pattern. 2 Samuel 6, David gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, to bring up from there, after they had conquered the Philistines, to bring up the ark of the Lord. They placed the ark of God... On a new cart, verse 3 tells us, to transport it. So they brought the cart with the ark of God. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord. They had conquered their enemies. But when they came to the threshing floor, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it because the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence. And he died there by the ark of God. Where did David go wrong? He was using the enemy's tactics without the enemy's expertise. He was willing to give in to the sloppy substitute, the cheesy imitation. They were attempting, as we are prone to be guilty of, implementing the ways of the world without the means of the world. Philistine methods must not be used for true Israelite work. Pagan philosophy must not be implemented by the saints of God. Rolling the ark along was much easier than shouldering it. God commanded them to shoulder it. Ease cannot be our measuring stick. Obedience is our measuring stick. Obedience to God and his word. Pragmatism has no place in Christian ministry. None. Both patterns, Nadab and Abihu and David and his men ignored the revealed mandate of God's word. Neither pattern gives evidence of any concern to please him or to honor him. You notice what God said to Aaron 
pardon, through Moses, I will be treated as holy. I will be honored. The anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah. Why? For irreverence. Nadab and Abihu coming up with their own ideas about doing ministry. David and others looking around at others' methods that seem to be working. These are helpful patterns for us to be aware of and to avoid and to set up against contrast the pattern of the Apostle Paul that we see here in the opening portion of 1 Corinthians. As Paul begins his letter to the Corinthians, he notes, I thank God for the work that he has done in you. I'm aware of the factions and the divisions that are popping up. I'm glad I didn't contribute to any of that, Paul says, by baptizing many of you. Christ didn't send me to do that, but he sent me to preach, Paul says. And not to preach in cleverness, not to use strategic methods, not to use culturally relative schemes. Paul is absolutely convinced that the gospel, the gospel is the wisdom and power of God. These opening chapters reveal this to us very plainly. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, For the word of the cross is foolishness, Paul writes, to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul says, when I came to you, Corinthians, all I came to you with was the gospel. It was all I had. And things haven't changed, he writes. It's all I'll ever have. Paul was completely convinced that the gospel was enough, and it didn't matter what season of life or how immoral or how disinterested The gospel was sufficient. It is the wisdom of God and the power of God. And the apostle was completely convinced of that. Which ought to be a strong encouragement for us to avoid wasting our time considering the shifting trends of our culture. And be certain that we are relative only to God and to the real spiritual needs of mankind. The nature of man and sin along with the nature of the gospel, demands that we apply Paul's words here that he writes to the Corinthians. We must come to grips with the fact that our communities, the next generation, the unreached peoples on our planet, will never find Jesus attractive or be impressed with the gospel, not apart from the wisdom and power of God. They cannot fathom that Jesus alone could ever be enough. You and I fight to believe that every day, this side of grace. They will never fathom that Jesus could be enough apart from the gospel being proclaimed and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. 
If we try to find some clever scheme to make the gospel attractive or to make Jesus more palatable, we are wasting our time. Paul knew that the Corinthians thought that his message and his methods were foolish and absurd. But Paul didn't sail by the compass of their desires or their expectations. Rather than the unchanging spiritual state of man's soul and the unshifting character of God and the unalterable realities of the gospel being the guide, instead of God's wisdom being the compass that you follow, we are left to our own devices, scheming to figure out how to reach the culture in a way that the culture prefers. The people in in the Apostle Paul's day wanted signs and wisdom. The people in our day, us type people, We're not so much looking for signs and wisdom to be revealed. We do have that inclination in us to want fun and games and loud and trendy and cool and clever and cutting edge or a focus on the family or a concentration on kids or maybe trust in a mere theological system. But none of that, none of that can be central. We must say with the Apostle Paul, But we preach Christ crucified. We must say with Paul, I determined to know him, to know Jesus Christ and him crucified. There in chapter 2, verse 2 of 1 Corinthians, it's a double negative. Like it is, I determined not to know nothing. We don't speak that way. In In the New Testament original language, in the Greek, it works, it's a point of emphasis. Paul was emphatic. It's my desire, my prayer, that we would be emphatic in our determination to know nothing to the degree that we know him who loved us with an everlasting love and to be enamored with his person and to enjoy his work on our behalf. Paul is completely convinced that the gospel alone is the wisdom and the power of God. So no matter what the Corinthians want, he gives them Christ. When I came, he says, I came with Christ alone. Jesus alone is the wisdom of God. Jesus plus anything else, and especially Jesus minus anything, describes the ridiculousness of too many modern approaches. The temptation, therefore, because it is the air that we breathe, because of the spiritual climate in which we live, The temptation is strong for us to cave and to give in. May looking at this pattern from Paul serve to instill in us a strong commitment to not give in and to determine to know nothing amongst one another except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The apostle at this point had been beaten with rods, thrown into prison, Mobs formed against him, followed to the next destination, laughed at, doubted, mocked. Yet he says to the beloved Corinthians, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ. Just Christ. He has been enough. And he will be enough. Look at chapter 2, the first five verses with me. 1 Corinthians 2. When I came to you, brethren, 
I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Paul reminds them, when I came to you, I realized that cleverness and wisdom, it wasn't going to do the trick. It wouldn't change your heart. So I determined to bring nothing to you but Jesus. He was your only hope. He's our only hope. Paul's saying, I realize that this approach and this method, I realize that it appears weak and vulnerable. I feel it even in myself, Paul confesses. He's aware of his own insufficiency. He came in weakness, not in confident strength. He was fearful. He was trembling. And the church at Corinth, as a result of Paul's wise and careful approach, was built not on the wisdom of man or the cleverness of gimmicks or the success of strategic methods, but on the power and wisdom of God. In order to be relative to the culture that God has placed us in and not obsolete as a church in our culture, we must be relative to God first and to man as God's word defines him. We have to give up the notion that we must be relative to our culture and its shiftiness. It's a moving target that lacks substance. Relativity to our culture is like nailing jello to the wall. And unfortunately, being relative to God rather than our culture is for the most part in complete opposition to the modern approach to church, which seems to find us asking all too often, what is culture like around us? We must become like them and then we will reach them. Or if we could only blend into the culture and slip them the gospel, I'm sure they would love our gospel and our, and our God and maybe they would even love us. We must avoid, at all costs, we must avoid falling prey to the desire to outsmart God in a vain attempt to be wiser than he's commanded us to be through the Apostle Paul's pattern here. Why are we so tempted to rethink or outthink God's plan and adjust ourselves and our ministry and God's gospel according to the culture and the ministry situations that we find ourselves in? It is not at all the plan of God that man's schemes produce real knowledge of God. It is, however, the plan of God that we humble ourselves and and trust in his wisdom rather than our own. Our cultural approach as a church, generally speaking, has attempted to be more clever than God in the past few decades. In, In our cleverness... We have strategized about how to reach people who do not want God by offering stuff other than God. That is strategizing against God's strategies. That is strategizing against God himself. And it has yet to work. Why has it not worked? Because the approach has not been the wisdom and power of God. 
It has not been the foundation of the person and work of Jesus Christ. The foundation of the approach has been the wisdom of man. It's a strategy that responds to the needs of the day, beginning in the wrong place with the needs of the culture, then adjusting God somehow to meet them or pretending to. It's not a strategy that looks at the character of God, the never-changing needs of men, and the sufficiency of Christ crucified. That must be our goal. It must be our mission. It must be our strategy. It must be the foundation of who we are as a church. We see who God is and what he is like, how he's revealed himself on the pages of the scriptures. The never-changing need of men and women and boys and girls to be reconciled with the God who created him in their own image and who have sinned and fallen from that position of being relationally connected with him and seeing that the sufficiency of Christ and him crucified is the only thing that will bring about that necessary reconciliation. So what now? What for us as God's people? What for us as Christ church in this new season? My suggestion is continue building. I don't mean this building. I mean continue establishing a work by God's grace that are built on the twin pillars, we might call it, of the person and work of Jesus Christ. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, who he is and what he has done. May our message be Jesus Christ and him crucified, not just from the pulpit, but from our lives. May our manner be characterized by Jesus Christ and him crucified. May our methods be determined by Jesus Christ and him crucified. May our motive be fueled by Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus Christ, the infinite, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, gracious, just, holy, unchangeable, I am. He is God, one with the Father, one with the Spirit. He owes existence to no one. He says, I am Jehovah, and besides me there is no Savior. He is God, and there is no other. There is no other name under heaven among men whereby we can be saved. He is the rock of ages. Angels worship him. Devils obey him. Saints love him. Sinners will one day bow to him. He is the author of creation the author of providence, the author of redemption, the author of glorification. He produced all things by his power. He fashioned them by his own wisdom. He supplies them out of his own bounty. He rules them with his own authority. He orchestrates them according to his sovereign will. He is above all in the glory of his nature. He will judge all according to his righteousness. Nothing can elude his all-seeing eye, and none can escape the loving grasp of his hand. He, exu- he is exalted above all and remains king forever. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is all loving and the altogether lovely one. May God help us to determine to know this Christ and him crucified. This glorious one came to lay down his life for you and him crucified. He shed his blood for your sin and him crucified. 
he quenched God's wrath that was due you. And him crucified. Your unrighteousness was dealt with in his death. And him crucified. His everlasting righteousness has been granted to you forever. And him crucified. As your substitute, he has secured your place as a child in the family of God. Let's determine together to know this Christ and this Christ crucified. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, our Father, we thank you for your word. God, will you take the truth that is found in it and pierce our souls, affect every fiber of our being. And God, aid us as we seek to determine to know your Son and then to be more acquainted with what he's done for us through the gospel. God, you've been so wonderfully faithful. We look to you to remain steadfast in your faithfulness towards us as your people. God, help us to know him in the fellowship of his sufferings and in the power of his resurrection. Hear us as we pray and help us now. In Christ's name, amen.